Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 140 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. We have three cases today, and welcome to March Madness. Here's to your team still being in the mix, although if you're from the Big Ten, for the most part, you're out, and uh, most of the number one seeds are out, et cetera. It's been a rough uh, rough bracket so far. Our fr- yeah. To eat. Yes. Yeah. Which is my favorite. It's, it's my favorite sporting kind of couple of weeks just because there's so many upsets and such good basketball. And, uh, well, yeah, except CBS does everything they can to ruin it. Well, that's by true. Making, by putting it on 75 different channels. That's right. And instead, you can't get the feel of the tournament. It was, I, you had a better feel for how the tournament was when it was on ESPN and it was on one channel. Right. And, and they, they would flip the different, the they, they'd stagger the games and flip to the game that was the most important. And right. They, and they would I, split screen them. Yeah. And you had the feel of the tournament. Now right. you have a feel of watching an individual game. I yeah. want an individual game. I want to watch the tournament because that's what makes it exciting. It goes on for two days yeah. to an extreme, obviously. It's daytime programming. No one's watching anyway. It's like the greatest daytime programming ever. Do you realize, Dan, <laughs> that's the number one days in the on the calendar for men to get vasectomies is the, really? is, is the, is the tournament? I did not know that. Yeah, the urologists are very busy the, the, this this past <laughs> week, and there's the reason why. Um, but send it, send the. You didn't think you'd get it. You didn't think that was going to happen today. Um, send it back to ESPN and let them just have one channel. It was so much better thirty years ago when they did the first two days, and or the first whole weekend they used to do, and it was so much better. Anyway, that's enough. I'm done. Yep. Not a problem. And, and if so, in any event. The first case today is from the Illinois Supreme Court. It's the important case with the Safety Act, Roe versus Raul. Our second case today is Highview Group Limited versus William Ryan Holmes, Inc. from the Illinois Appellate Second. So we might get a decision pretty quickly. And the third case today is Wong versus Midwest Gaming and Entertainment, LLC, from the Illinois Appellate First. Let's turn to our first case today. The Illinois Supreme Court, as Pat noted on uh, LinkedIn when he posted this case, likely heard the most consequential case of its term on Tuesday of last week. In Roe versus Raul, the court will consider whether the circuit court properly struck down the Safety Act is unconstitutional. The circuit court found that the statute violated the Illinois Constitution. The plaintiffs principally argued that the statute violates Article 1, Section 8.1, Crime Victims' Rights, and Article 1, Section 9 of the Illinois Constitution, which states, quote, all persons shall be bailable by sufficient sureties, end quote. The Safety Act removed cash bail as a means of guaranteeing appearance of a defendant at trial. The plaintiffs who are sheriffs and state's attorneys have had their standing to bring the suit challenged and faced a very difficult set of questions about the reading of the relevant provision of the Constitution 
and their separation of powers arguments. There are numerous other constitutional challenges on the procedure employed by the General Assembly to pass the bill, and the plaintiffs argue that such a change could only be done by constitutional amendment, not by legislation. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this very important case. Thanks, Dan. And for those that aren't familiar, this involves, among other things, the biggest, the high-profile thing, and the issue that's here is the cash bail, uh, elimination of cash bail and other detention, detention provisions, which are the ones that were struck down by the, uh, by the circuit court in Kankakee County. But it's a broader, it's a 700-page bill uh, that was introduced in the lame duck session in 2021 at the same time pre-judgment interest was introduced. And among their challenges are the enrolled bill doctrine and the germaneness, but that didn't really come up. It only, the, yeah. how it was presented only came up in passing in one comment from one of the uh, uh, counsel for the, for the plaintiffs, uh, who are the appellees here. But the real focus of the argument was from Justice Tice, certainly, was on, Chief Justice Tice, I should say, uh, on standing, uh, you know, who are you people and why do you get to file this suit? To which one of the responses was, well, do we have to wait till somebody is injured by someone who's let out to let that person sue? Is that the right person? Uh, Or can we have what amounts to a pre-enforcement challenge? The court stated implementation of the statute pending the outcome of this case. Uh, they did it on an expedited schedule. This was only struck down in December. And so they've, they've moved this along pretty quickly to have argument in March here. Um, the two of the justices didn't ask any questions. Um, justices uh, Neville and I'm forgetting who the other one is that didn't ask questions. Uh, yeah, I can't remember now. The justices Holder, White, and Overstreet, the two Republicans on the panel, um, asked questions that were generally favorable to uh, the plaintiffs and the Justices O'Brien, uh, Cunningham, and Chief Justice Tice asked questions that were generally favorable to the defendants, the state. Um, the, as I said, the principle, one of the issues is standing, but then also the merits of what this provision provides. So it says, Section nine of the Constitution, section Article one, Section nine, and that's Article one is the Illinois uh, Bill of Rights, and one of those is all persons shall be bailable by sufficient sureties. So I think you have to read the clause as a whole by sufficient sureties. What does that mean? Who gets to decide what that is? There was a time, you know, as counsel for the defendants pointed out, that a similar argument was made in the '60s when they got rid of what are called corporate sureties. I'm not exactly certain on what that is. But it was at that time the principal way that people got bail, um, as cash is the principal way people get bail today. Uh, And that was eliminated, and a similar argument was made and rejected. Um, There was discussion of this provision at the 1970 Constitutional Convention, uh, which this language apparently carries over from the original 1818 Constitution. Um, but there was discussion about changing it, and ultimately the decision was made not to change it in the 1970 Constitution that was then approved. The thrust of the argument by the uh, defendants, or sorry, by the plaintiffs, is that this is uh, both on their separation of powers argument that this is bail is something that has to be decided by the courts. Um, this is something that if the people want to do, they can do, but they have to do it through 
the amendment process. You can't do it through a, the legislative process, and especially not a legislative process like this. Um, yeah. uh, to call it a process is an insult to process, but it, 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 nonetheless, that's the process that's used. This was introduced, as I said, at 4 a.m. with 700 pages. No one had a chance to look at it, and quick pass it, off it goes. And this major change to Illinois law comes into effect. Justice Cunningham really pressed down on the issue. This is an issue of public policy, and doesn't the General Assembly get to decide public policy? Yeah, but did they here, or right. did this, or this was ju- was this just a cram down? Um, and uh, what do you do with that? Uh, op- they were all over the place. Uh, the, the 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 arguments. There's a ton here, and, and we could hardly do it justice. But it can't be understated. Um, how big a change this is to eliminate cash bail, as was pointed out by the, by, the, by the plaintiffs. A couple of states have done this, but they've done it through the amendment process as opposed to the legislative process. I, I don't know the merits of how it would work in their particular states. I don't know if those states had provisions like what Illinois has in its constitution. The other provision that Dan mentioned in the Illinois constitution is the Victims' Bill of Rights, which was a recent addition to the, to the constitution. And it, um, one of the arguments is, is that you don't have standing, uh, back to the standing argument, that the, the state's attorneys and the uh, uh, sheriffs don't have standing to uh, bring a claim under the Victims' Rights Act, only a victim does, which provoked the argument, well, then what are we supposed to do, wait for a victim? And one of those victims, because the statute requires twice notice for appearing in court, is the sheriff having to go out twice to... Uh, to a uh, an accused criminal, he's got to first serve him, you know, the first time, and then he's got to serve him again to show up to trial. It doubles the impact. Just part of the argument that there is standing that the protection of the law enforcement officers to uh, have to be subjected uh, to th- this kind of activity. Uh, I don't think that's what they signed up for, but I understand the concern. Um, it's very. It, this is a very controversial piece of legislation. I expect this to be a party line vote, which means I have a pretty good idea how it's going to turn out. But Dan, now what are your thoughts? Uh, I I expect the same just from the questioning and from what we know in Illinois these days. Uh, But this case, like you said, it raises a lot of the issues we've raised on this show with other things, the highway taxes and all the other cases we've talked about with uh, single purpose and the constitution the three readings and the you know all that stuff that we've talked about like you said that really wasn't the the, the main issue here in this case well at least uh, not an oral argument they said not were there at least not it a, wasn't it, yeah and it wasn't a basis to strike it down because no. the, the the circuit court is constrained by supreme court precedent that tells him he can't do it so he right didn't. <laughs> right but uh yeah it raises uh, I, I think you're right i think this is the the most impactful uh, case of this term uh, they decided a couple of BIPA cases, but those were from last term. Uh, can't think of a case that's got more impact on uh, state and local government and, and uh, law uh, than this every, one. It affects every citizen of Illinois. Right. And every it county. Every, every county, county. Every every nook and cranny of the state, every citizen is impacted. So very important case. And we'll see. You can't think of something that touches touches everyone's life in the way that this kind of a reform does. Now, maybe it touches it good and maybe it touches it bad. That'll depend on your perspective. 
but it touches everybody, no matter how you want to think about it. It does. And, you know, I, you know, the other thing I'll say about this is, is, you know, not quite like the Supreme Court of the United States, but we might be waiting a while for uh, this decision to come out from this court. Um, I, I don't know how long it'll be, but I, I can't imagine this would be an instant turnaround to you. No, I, I, but I think it's going to be quicker than normal. I mean, oftentimes Maybe. they take, oftentimes they take three or four months, and, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I, I expect this to be sooner than that. They did this on expedited briefing. They I did. They know from the question where they stand. I, 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 I would be surprised if this takes longer than a couple months. Yeah, they, they, we need an answer, and they're the only ones that can give it. So let's hear it. And let's move on. Yep, we'll, we'll see what happens, and it, you know, it'll be. Like I said, it'll be probably be a dissent in this case, and we'll see who's in the dissent for sure. Um, yeah, I, it, we'll be watching it from the civil perspective on what they do with germaneness because they have to address those issues. They do with germaneness and enrolled bill doctrine. Um, it would be very surprising if they struck this bill down on those bases. Um, so it, it really isn't the vehicle I would choose as someone that doesn't like those particular. Uh, doesn't like how those have been interpreted, but I, I just don't see them given the political valence uh, striking them down. Or they, you know, I don't know, but I also don't know how they could sidestep them. I think they have to address them because they were raised, and you can't blame the plaintiffs for raising them. I mean, they have no. to. This was not done in accord with what I think is the proper procedure under the Constitution. So they had to challenge it. We'll see what happens. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Very good. Uh, with that, we'll take our first break and come with come back with Highview Group versus William Ryan Holmes. I am glad Dan's getting to talk about this mess <laughs> because I have no idea what the facts are. We're back for segment two of episode 140, and Dan, he, he puts the outlines together, little little inside baseball here. Dan puts the outlines together and he gave himself this one. So no blame in me that I, that, that you, you have like two minutes or have, have like nothing to say because the facts here are so convoluted. <laughs> what recourse does a losing party at trial have if it discovers that its opponent lied at the trial in Highland group LTD versus William Ryan Holmes, Inc. The answer is file a 735 ILCS five slash two dash 1401 petition otherwise known as a 1401 petition, which for those of you who are from outside of Illinois, that's a petition you file when a judgment is final more than 30 days and it's less than two years from the date of the entry. To vacate the judgment and argue that if discovery answers prior to trial were given, the opponent, if truthful discovery answers have been given prior to trial, the opponent's trial testimony could have been impeached. In de- uh, the defendants discovered during deposition testimony of the plaintiff in subsequent litigation, that a secret side deal existed, existed of which they, of which have they had they been allowed, have they been aware of, uh, would allow them at trial to um, impeach the plaintiff and show that he had actually suffered no no damage. I'm sorry for the confusing history here, but the facts are amazing. But the procedure is really interesting. Dan, tell us about the case. Sure. And, and as you mentioned, Pat, a lot, lot of uh, confusing parts here. Um, the uh, amount of the side deal uh, and the work that was done by the person in the side deal or allegedly done 
it was about two hundred fifty thousand. There, there were total bills and the total at the at the trial. Um, and this case was up on appeal before. It's like two million dollars. Um, the first appellate decision really doesn't help because they did not know about this side uh, deal at the time. There was separate litigation, as Pat mentioned. Uh, there was questions about how that turned out, and it's uh, one count was was uh, granted, and the rest of the counts were dismissed or voluntarily dismissed. Uh, at, at this case, uh, the jury came back on the breach of contract or implied contract uh, and found that the plaintiff was not entitled to anything from this home uh, builder and developer. Uh, then there was an unjust enrichment claim, and on the unjust enrichment claim, the jury awarded five hundred ten thousand. So, and the thinking is, is two hundred fifty thousand was for this uh, work that was done by uh, pursuant to the, the the side agreement or or not. Another two hundred fifty thousand and ten thousand dollars for one lot in the property. When I looked at the uh, the the first appellate case, uh, there's language in there, and it, it gives you a little flavor. So, I'm I'm just going to read from the first appellate visit some some of the backgrounds and facts. Quote, plaintiff sought out a real estate developer to invest in the project before the entitlements expired. There's certain entitlements. This was a, a big property up in Lake Forest, I think it was. Uh, the houses there have to be 60,000 square foot lots or something like that. Some some very big space. Anybody living in Chicago, uh, lots are usually 30 by 100 or whatever it is. So, so much different uh, footprint uh, that's required in Lake Forest. There were certain entitlements and certain uh, zoning changes that were approved by this. And it was like a horse manor or something like that, I think, right? Is that the right? In Lake uh, Forest, Parish. In Lake Forest. Forest. Yeah, Parish of Thought. <laughs> People with money that, that want horses. Um, and so, continuing with the quote, defendants William Ryan Holmes and his entity, North Shore Builders, expressed interest and the two sides negotiated towards pursuing the project together. Plaintiffs gave defendants all their information regarding the final plat, the entitlements, appraisals, and marketing materials, but defendants ultimately purchased the land and took steps to develop the property on their own, end quote. And so one of the things that was talked about uh, during oral argument in the second appeal uh, in, the, in the, uh, the court is the fact that some of the allegations are that the defendants took pretty much the exact plats, the exact development plans, and built this exact replica of the the plans that the plaintiffs are claiming they took, and that's why they're in court. The uh, as Pat said, that it, it, it's very hard to tell exactly what's in the side letter. But here's what happened uh, on the on the underlying case with the plaintiffs uh, after this first go around, uh, the jury. Neither the jury nor the trial court nor, nor the appellate court the first time uh, knew about this side letter or side agreement. The uh, answers to interrogatories were that there's no other deals, arrangements, et cetera. And, and, and the biggest dispute is whether or not any of this money was spent, whether the materials were of quality, the plat and everything else. Um, and uh, so... Uh, as, as Pat said in the introduction, what, what's at stake here is whether or not uh, the opponents lied about this stuff. Um, the appellants opened up here uh, with, with the line that the truth matters. It's the hallmark of the adversarial system. 
And one of the first questions right out of the justice was that at the trial court, uh, the court said the truth did not make a difference here. Um, the, uh, th there's a case in Illinois uh, that I'm not overly familiar with called Cartwright that has to do with when it's a material major witness in a case um, that, you know, if, if it's discovered that they were untruthful on the stand and in the, their discovery and things, uh, that could make a material difference in the case. And I think the, the, the way the justices were asking questions of, of the appellant, I think they were trying to figure out, um, you know, what, what exactly is stake here, whether the, whether this lie and this, this non-disclosed, uh, information was, uh, was in fact, uh, material to what a jury would have done. Um, the, one of the questions I thought was interesting, Pat, of the appellant was uh, the jury only came to half of the million dollars that was uh, from from the witness trying, trying to recover here. And I, I think that the answer was was brilliant by the, by the appellant advocate. He said, you know, I wish I was in a jury room. You never know what goes on in a jury room. Uh, there was talk. One of, one of the things, again, that came up, at, I think, at the trial court level, uh, and and was talked about was this worst case scenario was five hundred ten thousand uh, dollars, two hundred fifty thousand again for the expenses that were incurred that turned out under the side letter maybe maybe not to be the case, two hundred fifty thousand dollars based on the the expertise and, and, and work done, and then ten thousand for the lot as as mentioned before, the, um, I think the justices one of their concerns was was again that Ryan Holmes, they said, was not a fledgling developer. And so one of the questions they asked of, of uh, counsel uh, was whether, whether or not uh, Ryan Holmes had ever, uh, uh, had, had ever engaged in these side letters. And again, uh, Pat and I are probably both aware. I mean, in commercial settings, sometimes you do have side agreements, side letter agreements and things of that nature for a variety of reasons. Um, Again, in this case, we don't know what's what's exactly in the side agreement, but we know that it had some some substantial impact on uh, what, what what took place here. So they asked a lot of questions of appellant, trying to get some, I think some some uh, insights into what was going on. Uh, they went well past his original limit. They gave him some rebuttal time, and then again, like in many cases, you hear that first side, uh, and then in, when the appellee stood up. Uh, they uh, really, really, I think, attacked into him. Um, and he was in a, I, th I, I think, you know, counsel for the appellee was in a difficult case here because some of the questions had to do with what he, know, what he knew and when he knew it. And as Pat and I said before we turned tape back on, as, as a lawyer, you never want to be in a position of those types of questions from a judge. You know, what do you know? What did you know? And when did you know it? Uh, especially in light of, of case here where it, it appears and, and the justices, I think, were pretty much pressing because I think the appellee's advocate was trying to say, well, you know, that's what's alleged, that there's lies and stuff and timing. And they're like, look, you know, for purposes here, uh, you, you gave us a definition of what a lie is uh, earlier. And this is a lie. Um, 
that that you know there was no other agreements or anything it uh, answers to the interrogatories the um uh the, the, the a lot a lot of questions uh, uh of the appellee a lot of tough questions i think the uh question again and i think the appellee's counsel was trying to make the argument uh, that even if, if even if these lies were known, it wouldn't have made a difference on the jury verdict. Again, he cited to the fact that the spreadsheet had over $2 million in total amounts. Uh, but I think the justices were pushing, pushing back because they said, look, uh, you conceded that the jury came back and didn't buy your story on breach of contract. And now you're arguing here somehow that there's a contract and amounts due. So how can unjust enrichment be the case? Um very convoluted uh, fact pattern here. Um, I, th I think, you know, given, given where the, the the justices were at on this, I think this is going to reverse for further deliberations, Pat. But uh, uh, just just a lot of procedural issues going on, and 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 the thing that uh, I don't think I mentioned is that this was under a, a de novo review, and so um, you know I think the the justices again were trying to figure out what exactly you know, they can uh, take into account in trying to figure out this 1401 motion. Dan, I agree with that. And I'm going to do a couple things here. First is I am aware of a, I have heard through the grapevine, shall we say, that there is a case down in, down in Peoria County, I believe, maybe it's Tazewell, where, I think it's Tazewell, where it's a medical malpractice case where a doctor is alleged to have lied based upon a review of the audit trail following trial. And there's a post-trial motion pending supported by an audit trail to try to get a new trial on the basis that the doctor perjured himself. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, I don't know. But that's an interesting time to raise that kind of thing. Yeah. And then we're going to have a case we're probably going to talk about next week called Pace Arquilla versus Arquilla, which is a matrimonial case that they arbitrated the maintenance award and then the award got confirmed, and now the uh, the wife learns that the husband is actually making more money than he said, and she wants it. And they filed; they could they they didn't file fourteen oh one, and they didn't file a section twelve motion under the Uniform Arbitration Act. They filed a fraud claim. We'll talk about that next week because let's just say that argument is spicy, uh, <laughs> yeah. a, a very entertaining argument. But I, I just had a chance to listen to it yesterday, but it dovetails kind of the opposite of, uh, you know, I don't sure how that was going to turn out, but somewhat different than this one. But I want to mention those two as different avenues of challenging things after you have a final order. 1401 seems to be the right way, uh, but maybe not always, depending upon your particular circumstance. Um, yeah, the justices uh, were not a fan of the appellee and the argument that uh, he was making. Uh, any question that got asked of Richard Nixon, you don't want to get asked of you. Um, <laughs> what, what did the president know and when did he know it? That is not what you want to get asked in any form by anyone, because it presumes the thing you that thing that you should have known, you should have known it a smite earlier. And we don't believe you that you didn't know it when you say you know it. You, so they really, really called that lawyer on the carpet and doubting his version of events. I have no basis to say whether that, I mean, they, the justices didn't have a basis to uh, question his answer, but they were like, 
how the hell did you not know that your guy had this agreement? You prepared these answers to interrogatories. You reviewed them. You signed them. You talked to the client. You're telling us you didn't know until a subsequent de- a deposition and a subsequent piece of litigation? Right. Okay. Uh, so either, you, as I used to say, we used to say to players when, they, when I coached and things didn't uh, go quite the way they should have, you know, player didn't know a play. It's like, well, either you're ignorant or you don't care. And a player never wants to be in that cash 22. And they would try to give you an answer so you don't care. They give you nothing so you're ignorant, which is it. It never, never, never worked out well once they were in that catch 22. So yeah, that Pelly's council couldn't sat down fast enough. He unfortunately decided to stay in there and that did not go well no. um, in, in this particular case. So, uh, well, we, we had a lot to say about that, Shockingly long. but uh, yeah, very interesting case. It'll be, we're going to learn something coming out of this case and the pace Arquilla case, uh, because I, I, I have not encountered this circumstance and, I think it's uh, I think it's very interesting. It is. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with Wong versus uh, Midwest. Pardon me, Midwest Gaming and Entertainment, Rivers Casino. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners! If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome to segment three of episode 140 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Does an eight-day delay by the defendant employer and place in stanchions to protect the plaintiff employee from patrons coming behind her beer tub at a casino and touching her constitute the failure to take reasonable corrective measures under the Illinois Human Rights Act. The plaintiff, a longtime employee at the casino, was touched, pinched, and kissed on the cheek by patrons over an eight-day period in July 2018. Such conduct had never occurred before. She reported this conduct and at least one incident was witnessed by a manager and initially management put garbage cans as barriers. These were removed the next day because it looked tacky and it took eight days to put the stanchions in place that prevented further incidents. During that time, additional incidents occurred. The circuit court granted summary judgment to the defendant and the plaintiff appealed. At all argument, the defendant relied on Seventh Circuit case law interpreting Title VII to discuss the definition of reasonable corrective measures and what constitutes a pervasive environment of sexual harassment. The plaintiff argued that those were were not persuasive and the justices pointed to a potential changes and mores that may render those decisions out of date. Pat, tell us about oral argument. Before we do that, is it mores or is it mores? Because- It's mores, I think, but- We had a split. We had a split at the oral argument. One of the justices said mores, and the advocate, I believe, said mores. Um, I, I was mores is probably right, but these, I was yeah. unaware that there were these people coming over from North Africa that uh, <laughs> that defined our our our, uh, our <laughs> culture. Um, you know, you know, I I, I think it's mores, uh, but it could be mores. I mean, it's it's like you didn't put it's you know it's like a s'more. Without the without the something, I'm not sure which which ingredient got left off. 
Um, <laughs> anyway, a, a, a really serious case, though, and one that yep. points to two things. Did that turn on a dime? It's ter- two things. Number one, the General Assembly is bad at writing things. And number what? two, there hasn't been much litigation about this. If the Human Rights Act has been around for as long as it has, 1982, and we still don't know what reasonably corrective measures. Now, I believe this language was added recently, to be fair. Um, but we don't know what reasonable corrective measures are, which is why they're having to borrow from the Seventh Circuit and federal case law as to what that means. Um, but they used language, and this is an argument that I thought the advocate for the defendant would use. Is like, this is a new addition to the statute. They use these terms because we have them. That's what they meant because the justices were really pushing back on all your Seventh Circuit cases. Yeah, they're great, but they're old. And conduct that was acceptable years ago isn't acceptable now. Um, And I don't know if at any point it was acceptable legally to pinch someone or (laughs) grab their waist or kiss them if they wanted none of those things. This poor woman is at a beer tub in the casino. So all this is on video. I mean, it's not like it's, there's no dispute that these things happened. And at least in one of the cases, the the fellow who kissed this poor woman, um, he was ejected and was banned for a year. So good. They took action. But what they didn't do is do things to prevent people from coming behind. So they did the, as Dan mentioned, they did the garbage cans and then they did the garbage cans, no good. So then they come up and she suggested from the beginning when it started to happen, apparently she'd been in this job for a long time. None of this had ever happened before. All of a sudden, it, it reminds me of the uh, of the Shiksa episode from Seinfeld. You know, <laughs> a, 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 you know, everybody's coming onto a lane all of a sudden. Um, so it, it was like all of a sudden, everyone's everyone's decided to ask this one guy asked this woman out, the beer girl out. It's like what? I mean, really, this is what you're doing? Um, so anyway, uh, but they do have a, an obligation under the under the law to protect from the the harassment of third parties. So we also have this question, not only of whether it was a reasonable corrective measure, whether eight days is enough. And and what defense or the plaintiff's counsel argues, hold it. It was a very simple fix. They had these things. They just needed to put them up. And instead their response was protect your work area or some nonsense. It's like, really? Protect your work area? What's she supposed to do? Slap them? hit them across the head with a beer bottle. I mean, none of those things are very good. Um, I mean, you know, if that's happening, they shouldn't, they got to do something about it. Now, eight days, what is a reasonable corrective measure? Lord only knows. And this was decided on summary judgment. And so the plaintiff's argument is, hold it, this should be decided by a jury. What's reasonable is decided by a jury. You can't decide this as a matter of law, notwithstanding what the Seventh Circuit has done. Okay. The other issue is, is whether it's pervasive. And apparently, I was unaware of this. This tells you what I know about employment law. Apparently, pervasive environment of sexual harassment had to used to include, used to have to be a hellish environment. Oh, my God. I mean, I can't imagine what that would be. Um, I, I don't even want to suggest it. This is a family program. Um, but, I mean, I can't imagine what hellish, pro- what, what, what people used to be able to get away with that that uh, wouldn't qualify as a pervasive environment of sexual harassment. Now, I will say that eight days and the kind of conduct we're talking about here, as inappropriate as it is, doesn't, conduct, doesn't constitute 
to my mind, a pervasive environment of sexual harassment. You know, she'd been working there. I think you, I don't think you could just look at the eight days. I think you got to look at the years apparently that she'd been working there. And then you look at this, these incidents of eight days when everyone decided it was time to grope the, uh, the, the, the beer lady for some reason. I, I, don't, I don't get it. What, what all of a sudden these people were doing, but it's undisputed that it was just the, this period. It hadn't happened before and it hasn't happened since good, of course, but I don't know how that's pervasive. I think you have to look at it in the totality um, of the situation. But this was decided on summary judgment uh, and, and as a matter of law. Not so sure the appellate court was buying it. The panel, especially a panel that has as its, as its uh, presiding justice, Justice Walker, who finds questions of fact in everything. That's not a criticism. That's just a statement of fact. I mean, he... There, there, you'll remember the one case we had Justice Hyman, Justice Walker, and I want to say Justice Pierce. And they came to three, they had, they had like three different opinions at the oral argument. One was one way, one was the other way. And Justice Walker was, there's a question of fact. And, oh, question of fact. Back it went. Uh, because you couldn't reconcile Justice Hyman's position with Justice Pierce's position. Um, on, on the statute of limitations issue. And Justice Walker's like, it's a question of fact, isn't it? And that's, sure enough, very short opinion, question of fact. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, and, and Justice Taylor and Justice Odin Johnson were the other justices on this panel. And they had other reasons why they either thought the, the advocate for the uh, defendant was wrong on the law or maybe the law has changed or, 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 or so forth. Um, but, yeah, it's... <laughs> I, you know, I can think of worse situations, certainly, but this is yep. plainly not a good one. And is eight days too long? And 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 frankly, what are the damages really for these I, I, these particular? I, I I imagine most of it's emotional. Certainly not. I, I don't think there's very much physical injury we're talking about here. Obviously, they're unwanted touchings and, and they're inappropriate and all the rest. But um, I, I think this was maybe really about as attorney's fees, uh, as as many of these kinds of cases are. But um, I, I, it'd be interesting to see, cause this is going to develop the law in this area because it doesn't seem, I mean, if, if there was an Illinois case on point, I expect we would have heard about it. And all we heard, heard about were seven circuit cases. Right. So, uh, Dan, anything to add on, 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 uh, Wong versus Midwest gaming? You know, mostly Pat, when I, when I listened to this and, and was thinking about reasonable corrective measures and, and then EOC stuff, but I haven't done boatloads of it but i've done enough over my career in-house and external uh to me i think of it like reasonable accommodations and so not a not a time uh, constraint but more what is the solution that you put in place so um uh, you know it's like reasonable accommodations under the 8a right it's not you know to take you eight days or five weeks to put it in but what what is it that you did to allow the employee to have reasonable accommodation so I think it'd be interesting to see if they go there, but uh, I agree with you. It's uh, it's uh, it's an interesting case, and it'll be important because it, it'll guide and help us figure out these cases. And like I said, not the most egregious, but still not a good fact pattern. So it'll be interesting to see what what happens well, and, here. And, and good, and good, it wasn't the most egregious. I mean, right. I'm glad this woman wasn't subjected to worse than what she was subjected to. What she right. was subjected to was bad enough, and you know, and glad that it ended and glad they found a solution that seems to have worked and haven't been any more problems. But, you know, is eight days too long? I don't know. 
We'll yeah. find out. Yep. Which brings us to BI for COVID. Big news, Dan. Uh, we haven't had a yep. big news issue in no. this segment. We've been kind of going along. I think the last big one was the IRT case from the yep. Indiana Supreme Court. So tell us what happened at the uh, Louisiana Supreme Court. Sure. The uh, Cajun County case, which we had uh, talked about uh, on here, was the first case that was filed. It was a jury uh, case uh, down in Louisiana uh, for a famous uh, restaurant uh, down in uh, New Orleans. Is it New Orleans? Uh, uh, New Orleans, yeah. It's, it's in the French yeah. Quarter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and the, the, the Louisiana Supreme Court overturned uh, the appellate court. Uh, they said that there was no evidence of direct physical loss or damage uh, and that COVID wasn't, uh, didn't result in physical loss or damage. So a huge case uh, in, a, in, a, in a state's highest court. And again, I don't think any state Supreme Court that we've covered on here is, has come to a different conclusion. Uh, Other but, than Vermont that said there was a question yep. of fact and remanded the situation. So no yeah. one has affirmatively said there's coverage. That's yep. true. Yep. And, and, so. and so the dam really hasn't broken, has it? No. I'm still waiting for that dam. It seems to be holding. We'll see what happens in California. Yeah. Which brings us to our next case. Uh, the Ninth Circuit rejected in and outs virus coverage appeal and isn't going to wait for the two questions that they certified to the California Supreme Court on the top. Right. Because there was a contamination exclusion. It's an unpublished decision. That's how little they think of this. But yep. there it is. Uh, we await California um, to see what they uh, what the folks there have to say. And as Corey Webster would would probably post, or, or even Tim Kowal, uh, the way that that the Ninth Circuit works is even though uh, it's unpublished, there's ways that they can pressure uh, this to change. I don't see it happen in this case, but but uh, Corey's always writing about the uniqueness of the Ninth Circuit and how the uh, many judges on that panel are constantly coming up with maneuvers of how they which is unlike any other circuit that I'm aware of, just the, the, the pressure that some of the, the active judges can bring to bear for either a, a hearing on banc or uh, for other things that take place. But, but uh, yeah, interesting two cases uh, in BI this week. Indeed. All right. So that brings us to our prediction, sure to go wrong. Dan, we had a good week, 3-0. We did. Uh, yep. You are now 206 and and a half, and 13. I am 203.5, 47.5, and 13. Uh, we were, as I said, 3-0 this week and uh, was late on one of these uh, because I just missed it. I found this case, the Ruben Dahl versus Community case, in looking for something else. And I realized I, 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 I missed it. So this is one that came out about a month ago. If you'll recall, this is the case from, uh, from Indiana where they had the radio waves going out on beepers uh, to tell the procedures. And it had uh, protected health information on it. And there was a suit brought to say that uh, this is, we discussed this on episode 133. Um, and the court said, uh, no dice, no, no play. Um, we'll, uh, so very interesting case. Yep. But uh, sorry, I missed that one a little late, but we got it right. Uh, when I miss them and I've waited and we got it wrong, we won't talk about those. Um, <laughs> which brings us to, to the John Fitzgerald uh, portion of the program. Very good. We had a good week. John had a better week. He uh, did. Not as good as John, our other friend, Jonathan Amarillo, had, where he had two wins for the same client on the same day. John Fitzgerald had two wins in three days for two different clients. So so not quite as good 
is the, the Johns are going back and forth as to who can kick ass more uh, on appeals. <laughs> uh, but uh, and, and and just to up the ante, Jonathan Amarillo's he had a win in the Illinois Appellate Court and the and the United States Supreme Court. That's right. On the same day for Union Pacific. So that's 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 a hell of a day. I'm just telling you, that's it ain't getting any better. He is. In his entire career, it is doubtful he'll ever have a day half as good as that one as as an advocate. Um, but Jonathan Fitzgerald had a great week. Dan, tell us about it. Sure. Two cases, as you mentioned. The first case uh, was from the first district, uh, fifth district, Hill versus Cottrell. Uh, we covered this in episode 131. This was uh, a case that involved uh, personal jurisdiction and the, what the appellate court, 5th District, said was the trial court did not err in denying Cottrell's motion to dismiss for lack of specific personal jurisdiction, where the plaintiffs made an adequate showing that Cottrell purposefully directed its activities in Illinois and that the plaintiff's cause of action related to Cottrell's activities in Illinois, such that it would not be unreasonable to require Cottrell to defend the plaintiff's action in Illinois. And we've talked before on Ford cases and other cases uh, that... Uh, this personal jurisdiction is an important concept, uh, but congratulations to John on that case. I will have to say that um, I am very troubled if this decision remains the law. Um, it effectively yeah. eliminates specific personal jurisdiction because there is no relationship between the conduct alleged here and or the, the, the injury and the, the contacts with the forum. I, I, in Ford, there were there was a relationship. Right. Um, there is no relationship. This case principally dr- uh, got driven by the decision in uh, Ford versus versus Eighth Judicial Circuit of Montana from the United States Supreme Court. That's that uh, Ford is neither based there nor were the products manufactured in Montana and Minnesota, um, but they were able to sue there because Ford car dealer or sorry, car, car manufacturer, I should say, uh, has marketing and a huge network of dealers and maintenance facilities and all kinds of things that would have led to the per- None of that existed here. I don't care how, if, if all it is is a certain amount of money that you have to do business in to be subject to specific personal jurisdiction, you've eliminated the concept of specific, specific personal jurisdiction. Um, right. it, it, effect- it effectively goes away. So I, I, I'm really not down with this opinion. I really hope they appeal, uh, and I hope they take it all the way because Ford has to be cabined by something. Otherwise, and I think I think Ford is cabined by its own language and by the situation of Ford. But uh, by the way, if you can hear that, the, drinking you know, game, get, yeah, they're they're coming to get us. Take a sip, um, Dan. Uh, tell us about Levenfeld versus O'Brien. This was a first district case. We covered it in episode 138. So the first district acted a little bit like a, the second district uh, recently. Uh, this was the case where uh, there was a uh, claim for contingency fees for plaintiffs, uh, not not uh, uh, per, per engagement letter. And, and the first district remanded the case uh, to determine the value of the services that were actually provided. Um, so contingency fee was too much, uh, but there is some value uh, to the uh, case to the plaintiffs. And again, this was another John case 
And so congratulations to John. Remand it back for further deliberations to try to determine what the value of the services of the law firm are. Yeah, and this is another one I don't like. Um, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of this ruling either because I, I don't understand how you get to have an illegal contract and you still get paid. Right. Um, all of the, they didn't touch, you know, one of the cases that John was relying on was the Vandenberg case where they had a similar violation and they didn't, and they did, and also they didn't present anything in terms of fees, uh, hourly fees. And they just basically said, your goose is cooked. You don't get anything. They yeah. didn't really discuss, I don't think at all, the Vandenberg no. case. What may be going on here is, and they did have a passing comment that at least half of the hours billed were by a volunteer. So I think what their expectations are is they aren't going to get very much. And because they did present something, they should at least get to present the value of whatever it is they did spend. I, I also think that they're going to have substantial arguments about the bad advice they got. I frankly can't believe the O'Briens didn't counter sue for legal malpractice. Um, they right. probably couldn't because they didn't have damage because they were able to settle the case and they weren't too far damaged and they didn't have to pay any fees uh, until now. But I, I still don't understand why they didn't file a counterclaim for, uh, for, for uh, um, malpractice because the, yeah. the lady was made, she resigned her position. It was bad advice. Uh, she was resigned a position as a co-trustee because of the alleged right. conflict. It was a terrible piece of advice, and awful. It just—I just don't understand it. Uh, I, I really am not a big fan of this opinion. Well, I'm a big fan of half the opinion. Let's say that. I—I I, I would have just said you're done. Um, too bad. <laughs> I mean, I, I just—that would have been my opinion. That would have been the opinion. You're done, and and you know, reversed. That—that's my view. Anyway, uh, our uh, prediction sure to go wrong for this week. Uh, the circuit court in Roe versus Rowell is being reversed, right, Dan? I think so. I I think so. I can't imagine it's not. I, I, I can't imagine a world where it isn't. Um, nah. <laughs> high, high, high View Group versus William Ryan, that's getting reversed. Getting reversed. As is Wong versus Midwest. That's a reversal. A reversal week, yeah. Uh, again, that's like two out of the last three shows we've had three reversals i i i i'm extraordinarily confident about these reversals based these on the yeah arguments. these i feel better about than the last set of of I reversals think, i do i, I think those are clear which brings us to the rule with the rule of the week dan you want to go over this you want me to you can do it you found it and so why don't you tell us talk about rule 17 foreign subpoenas so uh, I was drafting my, I, I was doing my usual search, daily search for cases and whatnot. And one of the things I go to is a extensive, website. extensive search. Sometimes it's not very good as we learned earlier today about Rubendahl. So, uh, <laughs> the search, I, one of the websites I go to, cause I'm old fashioned. I go to the bookmark of the Supreme court's website where they have new orders and things. And so Friday afternoon, I come across Rule 17, newly created Rule 17. It had previously been reserved. And it deals with foreign subpoenas. I was like, this is interesting. The Illinois has adopted the Uniform Interstate Depositions and Discovery Act a long time ago. What do we also got a rule for? And as closely as I try to follow the legislative history of this state, I learned something this morning in preparing my column. You won't believe this, Dan. <laughs> but as part... In the lame duck session in January, 
they amended the Uniform Interstate Depositions and Discovery Act with 200, they had introduced, it was part of a larger bill of 270 some pages. They dumped on January 4th. They passed it January 10th, a whole six days <laughs> on Senate Amendment 1. So after it already passed out of the House, it gets amended five, and then it gets amended five more times in the Senate. Before it passes out of the Senate, there's a concurrence and out it goes. It's a bill that appears to deal with reproductive issues. So naturally, we needed to amend the Uniform Interstate Depositions and Discovery Act. Okay, I guess I can see the connection, but sure, that's one subject. That's here, next germane. And here we come back to three readings, I'm sure. Three readings. Three readings in germaneness. <laughs> so you might have guessed what my column is about this week. Um because the Supreme Court has the unique, and now the Supreme Court has to, because it deals with what clerks are supposed to do in the statute and things, and you don't file discovery things with the clerk and all this. So the Supreme Court had to had to issue this rule. And I was like, you issued a rule. Well, why didn't you? I, my initial response was, well, why didn't they go through the regular process? This statute's been in place for like seven years. And now I know why. When I researched how it came to be, it was because they had no time. They had no time to do it because the general, because I guarantee you, I guarantee you, the General Assembly didn't walk across the street to the Supreme Court and said, hey, we're going to do something with this statute over here that might affect what you people have to do on your rules. I guarantee you that didn't happen. You know, like it would have happened if it had happened during the normal spring legislative process, which right. started in January and ends in May. And, you know, we have a lot of time to really figure out what's going on and things percolate and interested parties figure out what's going on. You know, like legislation should be like <laughs> like instead of this in a lame duck session in January, we're burying it in the middle of something. And someone that follows it is relatively closely as I do has no idea that it's occurred until an unrelated thing gets amended. I, it, so that's the rule of the week. The rule of the week is the General Assembly needs to follow the statute. No. Needs to follow the Constitution. The, the rule of the week is Rule 17. If you have practice, if you practice in Illinois, you, I'm always get I'm getting requests. You know, every couple months from colleagues, hey, can you help us out with a subpoena? There's new rules to reflect the new version of the statute. Um, but yeah, welcome to Illinois, people. This is how we right. do things. It is it is not a good scene. Uh, Dan, anything to add on on my little rant there? Nope. Yeah, you summarized it well. So with that, we'll take our leave. Appreciate everybody joining us this week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. We will see you next week for another episode. And we've already given you a preview of one of the cases we're going to talk about. We've never done that before. No, there you go. Outstanding. See you next week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. 
They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.